verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion. Now, what's Mount Zion? Mount Zion is one of the hills there in Jerusalem. Stood the Lamb, and with him, so this is Jesus, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, this is the 144,000 Jewish evangelists during the tribulation. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and a sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, and before the elders. Now, here's a key. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. Now, there's several things I want you to notice about heaven. First of all, I want you to notice that you can learn in heaven. So this earth is not where all learning stops. Okay, you can learn in heaven. Now, to me, that's a great thought because the idea that your, your knowledge base would remain the same when you die, that's a horrible thought. I mean, you're going to get to heaven and see all kinds of new things. So heaven is a place of learning. But also, I want you to notice no one could learn this song except the 144,000. Now, in heaven, there's no jealousy, no envy, no pride, no je jealousy, envy, and pride. In heaven, there is none. Nobody is going to be jealous of the fact that only the 144,000 can sing a song that none of the rest of us can sing. See, there is no competition in heaven. Competition, you know, when people say that they're very competitive, usually there's a pretty strong element of pride in there. Ah. <laughs> now, there was no jealousy, and, and, and so much of what's done in the world today flows from jealousy and envy and pride because somebody has something we don't have or somebody's doing something that we can't do, and we have an attitude with it. Well, in heaven, we won't have those attitudes anymore. We're just going to be happy that the 144,000 can do this. Now, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women. All right, so they're virgins, for they are virgins. And these follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. Now, these men are probably Nazarite vows. All right, these are probably men who have taken a Nazarite vow. They're still virgins. And I want you to notice that wherever the Lamb goes, the 144,000, this is Jesus' entourage. They are his first fruits for God and the Lamb. I would say this is the first fruits from Israel. Because at the end of the Great Tribulation, all of Israel is saved. These men are the first fruits. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. I love that. No lie was found. Then I saw another angel flying overhead with an eternal gospel. Notice, the gospel is eternal. Now, that, that, that's important. The gospel is not a new covenant thing. Remember, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. The gospel is eternal. 
to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, so the gospel, two characteristics of the gospel. The gospel is eternal, and the gospel is for everyone. Now, now brothers and sisters, again, how often does the scripture stress this? Whosoever. Okay, it's the gospel is for every nation, tribe, language, and people. Not, and this is where you get into Calvinism, not just, move my computer over here a little bit better, not just the elect. Now, Calvinism states that only a few people are going to be saved that God has chosen. But I want you to notice it's for every nation, tribe, language, and people. You know, for years I struggled trying to understand these new gatherer churches and and couldn't understand how could they possibly just want to focus on gathering Christians together and not, not go to the world. And then I began to realize almost all of these gatherer churches have Calvinism in their foundations. You see, one of the truths that you have to learn is methodology is determined by theology. Let me say that again. Your methodology is determined by your theology. I am not a Calvinist. I believe that God wants everybody to be saved. So my methodology is preach the gospel, crusades, personal evangelism, you name it. I mean, get the message to everybody. But a person whose doctrine is Calvinistic, which believes in the doctrine of election, that only a few people that are saved that God has already chosen and the people that God has chosen are going to be saved, so you don't, need to worry, you don't need to worry about evangelizing. You just need to be concerned about discipleship. Well, you know, they, they so distort things. So this eternal gospel is for everyone. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and the sea, the earth and the springs of water. Now notice, there comes, judgment does come. There comes a season when this age of grace that we are living in right now, and really this is an interruption in God's prophetic calendar, this age of grace we live in. There, there, there does come an hour. There comes a point when God's judgment comes. And notice, worship him who made. So God is creator. Now, I, I know we live in a world and, you know, Again, in my early days of Christianity, I couldn't understand why the big fight between creationism and evolution. And as a young baby Christian, I thought, isn't there some middle ground in between there where, you know, but you know, the longer I live and the more I study, the doctrine of creation is one of the core doctrines of our faith. By faith, we believe that God created the world, Paul says, by faith. Now, part of Worship is understanding who he is. God is the creator. So if you were to ask me today, Pastor, is there any middle ground? No, I would tell you that I'm a young earther. I don't believe in an an earth that is billions of years old or hundreds of billions of years old. I believe in a young earth. You know, we're we're looking at maybe 7,000 years or so. So what about carbon dating? Man, science always gets things mixed up. Men are always learning. I believe in a young earth. I believe in creation. You say, well, what about all the dinosaurs and all of those things? That's very easy. Go do a little study on creationism. Get get on Google and see some of the wonderful Christian scientists that have laid out exactly when all these things occurred. And look a little bit on on some of your 
some of the origin websites where you know you you see that the creation and you see the timeline and it, it's a beautiful truth. But the thing I want you to see here is part of our reason for worship is that God is the creator. Okay, I mean, and if you don't see Him as creator, if you see Him as an evolver, then then you have a problem. God is the creator. And another angel. And, and let me just throw something else in here. It scares me when men try to become creators. When men try to splice genes together and create something new and give life. That kind of stuff scares me. God is the creator. A second angel followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Now this is the false church during the tribulation. She who made all the nations. Now notice she made. This is force. All the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So the false church during the tribulation is going to be very sexual. Now, I want you to understand the world doesn't just turn a switch and change. It's like boiling crabs in a pot. You slowly change the environment, otherwise you have a mess. Now, you, you see a lot of this is what I call prophetic symptoms taking place. You, you see the dam built over the river Euphrates so that now they can flip a switch and the river Euphrates can be dried up and the armies of China can march to the Battle of Armageddon. You, you see things beginning to happen where, you know, more and more worldwide governments want to control the travel of people, or want to control buying and selling by people. You, you, you see lots of things happening. But one of the things you also see is more and more sexual immorality in the church, sexual immorality in church leaders like Jezebel in the book of Revelation chapter 3. So the false church during the tribulation, there's no more Holy Spirit. And really the false church, there's no more, there's no more salvation. During the tribulation, the only people that are left are, are people who have rejected God. Okay, they, they have a form of religion, but they, they don't want God. And there's nothing holding them back. And sex, sexual immorality is going to be a large part of this false church. And they made people do it. Okay, I mean, this is, this is a forced thing. And another angel, a third, followed him, saying in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out in full strength into the cup of his anger. Now, this mark of the beast, this is going to be that mark either on the forehead or on the hand that's needed for buying and selling. So if you worship the beast, or you worship its image, or you receive the mark on your hand or your forehead, he said, you will drink the wine of God's wrath. Now, that's already bad. But notice, the wine of God's wrath is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Now, notice, wrath poured into anger. And that's, that's tough. And will be, not might be, tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of his only angels and the presence of the Lamb. So, hell can be seen. And remember, Jesus, when he, he teaches the story of, of the rich man who went to hell and, and Lazarus who went into Abraham's bosom, there's a great chasm fixed in between, but you can see in between them. 
So all of this punishment will take place in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now you look at it, you go, how, that doesn't fit my understanding of Jesus. You know, Jesus, how could Jesus stand there and watch people tormented with fire and sulfur for the rest of eternity? How could Jesus do that? Well, who are you to question God, first of all? I mean, that's what we've been learning in Romans, about who are you and I to talk back to God? But I want you to understand, Jesus did everything to save these people. He did everything to provide an opportunity for these people. He suffered and he died on a cross. Now, if they choose to reject him, yes, then for the rest of eternity, he will watch their sufferings in hell. And you know what? I don't think it's going to bother him. Oh, how could you say such a thing, Pastor? Because he did everything he could for them. You know, have you, have you ever done everything you could to help somebody? And then they just make their own way and totally make a disaster or something. And you sit back and you, okay, this is, this is what they wanted, so okay. But you know you did your best. Well, multiply that by infinity. Jesus did his best. And they chose to reject it. So this is their choice. This is their choice, not his. And the, see, you and I have got this whole idea that Jesus is this sweet, sweet, softy who who just, you know, walking in love. I mean, we, we've got this weird idea of Jesus. Jesus is good and Jesus is love, but he is also holy and just. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So hell is not a temporary punishment like a one-year jail. This is forever. Let's put it in red forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is, this is, there is no such thing as purgatory, first of all. Purgatory is a man's idea. It's based on man's idea of punishment that you put in your time. You serve your time and then you've been, then you've been set free again. No, there, no you you either accept what Jesus did on the cross for you or you spend an eternity in hell. Here's a call for endurance of the saints who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. So notice they, number one, obey, and number two, they have faith, they believe. And I heard a voice in, saying, in heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. These are, these are the dead in Christ during the tribulation. So there are going to be people saved during the tribulation, but they, every one of them will die a martyr's death. I mean, you, you have to understand this. People say, well, you know, if it all turns out to be real, pastor, I'll get saved during the tribulation. If you can't live for him now, how are you going to die for him then? Okay, I mean, and don't think that this is going to be like all of a sudden these things happen and oh, you're shocked. No, no. All of it will be like a slow raising of the water of a pot of crabs you're cooking. And all of a sudden you realize, I took the mark of the beast and I didn't even know it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. These people who are persecuted and suffer horribly during the tribulation, when they die, they will rest from their labors but their deeds will follow them. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship. 
Testament passage today picks up in Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. All right, now does Nineveh sound familiar? Think of Jonah. So think of Jonah. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the visions of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his enemies and keeps wrath for his enemies. Aren't you glad that we're not appointed unto his wrath? All right. But notice the character of God. God is jealous. God is avenging. And God has wrath. So notice, notice these character traits of God. See, God is not just love. God, God, 
God is a multifaceted character. And you have to understand, every one of these attributes of God is infinite. God is infinite love, but he's also infinite wrath. He's infinite mercy, but he's also infinite vengeance. I mean, you, you have to, you cannot just have a single faceted understanding of God. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. So let's add some characters there. Slow to anger, great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So God is just. These are beautiful characteristics. His way is a whirlwind and a storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon fails. The, the mountains quake before him and hills melt. Earth's, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? So God has indignation. Who can endure the heat of his anger? So God's anger can get hot, okay? God doesn't just look at you and say, I'm angry. No, the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like a fire and rocks are broken into pieces before him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge of him. So notice again, character traits of God. God is good. God is a stronghold in the day of trouble, and God knows his people. Now notice, who take refuge in him. In the day of trouble, look for God. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end to his adversary and pursue his enemies into darkness. Now please, th this is military, all right? This is a military, military concept. Now, when God, when God fights, he makes a complete end to his enemies. A complete end. Notice the phrase is used twice. He pursues his enemies into darkness. Now, in the ancient days, when they would fight a battle, you didn't just rout the enemy. You didn't just break their lines and have them run to the hills because then they would regroup and attack again. He pursued his enemies into the darkness. He said, well, it's not safe up there in the hills in the darkness of night. You know, they could, we could get killed. No, he, he's not afraid. God is not afraid to pursue his enemies. Why do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. <laughs> I like that. Have you ever noticed that when God deals with people, they don't come back looking for another fight. Hmm. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. In other words, quickly burnt up. Verse 11. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord. A worthless counselor. Now, there's an interesting phrase. Someone who plots evil. You know, there are people that actually plan to fight God, and there are people who plan to fight God's work. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I break his yoke off of you and burst your bonds apart. 
the Lord has given commandment about you. Nor more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image, the metal image. I will make your, your grave, for you are vile. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. I like that. The feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. You know, I don't trust creatures that all they do is fight people. We have a good news message. All right? I've always found that preachers that fight people. I, I remember my grandpa talking to me. I said, Grandpa, why is this guy always attacking other people? And grandpa said, Davy, he's got three fingers pointed back at himself. He got one finger pointed at other people. But when people are fighting all the time, they're trying to divert your attention from looking at themselves. Look at where the three fingers point, right back at them. So, Davy, if you'll investigate, you'll find that these people who are attacking others, just fighting them with everything they've got, there's always something in their life they're not wanting people to see. He said, but sooner or later, everything hidden shall be revealed. And you know, in my short life, I've learned to be patient because God is patient with people, but he will expose things that people don't change. Upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news publishes peace. Now what he says, look at this. He said, number one, keep your feasts, O Judah. Number two, fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now notice, worthless, worthless. And notice, these worthless people pass through you. Now, now notice this. They do not stay. These are temporary people planning to leave. As soon as they're among you, they're planning to leave. They're just taking what they can get. Now, these are worthless people. Worthless people pass through you. Now, think of some food that you have eaten in your life. <laughs> and it passed right through you. It was bad food, Diba. And I mean, you ate it, it made your stomach sick, and it went straight out the other end. It passed through you. That's sometimes how people are like in our lives. There are worthless people that just come into our life, and they're not good people. Let these people pass through. The quicker they are gone, the better. These are not people who intend to be a part of your life. They're users. They're takers. They're not blessers and they're not givers. They're users and they're takers. And they just pass through. So, you know what? Just learn in life. Let them pass through. Chapter 2, verse 1. The scatterer has come against you. Man the ramparts. Now, he's speaking to Nineveh. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. God is restoring. When God restores his people, scatterers come against their enemies. Ah. When God, in the time of restoration, enemies are scattered. Now, do you remember the old song from the 19 enemies, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered? So sometimes you just hold steady as God begins to bring restoration, some of those people that have tried to destroy your business, some of those people that have tried to destroy your career, God scatters them in a time of restoration. 
The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spring spears are brattish. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall and the siege towers set up. The river gates are open and the palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguishes in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were, were none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots with fire and your sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. This is all prophesied against the city of Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city, a city all full of lies and plunders, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of a prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays the nations with her whorings and the people with her charms. Now notice, whorings, charms, whorings, charms. You know, folks, anytime you begin to get false religion, it's like the whoring of a prostitute. How often throughout the Old Testament is idolatry looked at as whoring? People committing adultery with a prostitute. And, you know, these, these false religions, they have their charms. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look upon your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street, for her honored men lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. Said Nineveh, you also will be drunken, and you will go into hiding and you will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they will fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the rick mold. There will be a fire to devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. 
You increased your merchants like the stars of the heavens. All right, this is business. And Nineveh was very proud of its business community. He said, so you, you increased your incredible business. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There was no ease in your hurt. Your wound is grievous. And all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. All right, so people celebrate the destruction of destroyers. Nineveh had been a destroyer of cities and a destroyer of peoples. And when their own destruction came, people rejoiced and were happy. Don't ever want, you don't ever want it, people to be happy for bad things that happen to you. You want people to rejoice when you rejoice and to mourn when you mourn. These people were mourning and people celebrated. Now, sometimes that's because of wickedness, like the two witnesses we read about the other day. The whole world had a second Christmas and had parties and gave gifts to each other to celebrate the death of the two witnesses, but those were righteous men. <laughs> it's a funny world we live in, brothers and sisters. Now, you look at th through some of these Old Testament passages, and, you know, you go, man, I'm so happy, like Paul says, we are not appointed under wrath, but we are saved by grace. But don't, don't discount all the beautiful truths that we've learned about the character of God, because this is who God is, just as much as he's a God of grace and a God of love and a God of mercy. He's a jealous, avenging, wrathful God who's slow to anger. You know, he, he's all of these things also. So let's have a, a broader concept of the character and the nature of God. All right, we'll see you tonight, 7 o'clock, as we get back into the